Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Scott Stauffer, founder and CEO of Scale Matters. Today, we'll be covering three main topic areas with Scott. First, building go-to-market as a series of iterations. Is it a conscious or unconscious iteration process? Second, moving from static scorecards and dashboards to actual insights. And third, optimizing your go-to-market motion faster while consuming less capital. Scott, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Sure, Ray. Thanks for having me, first of all. Well, my journey has been a long one. This is my fifth entrepreneurial stint as a CEO, having started my first company back in 1993, actually. So I've been doing the uh, early stage startup gig for quite a while. My passion is really around the go-to-market aspects, well, product strategy as well as go-to-market. And being kind of a trained engineer, I've tended to be what I refer to as a quant CEO, one who really focuses on trying to manage by numbers, manage by metrics, et cetera. So seemed like a perfect fit to have a chat with you. Well, this is the Metrics That Measure Up podcast, so we can geek out on data and metrics for the next 30 minutes, Scott. So let's <laughs> jump right into it. So one of the topics that everyone's talking about today is go-to-market, your go-to-market strategy, your go-to-market motion, your go-to-market uh, measurements of success. But one of the things in our earlier discussions, you talk about building go-to-market as a series of iterations, not spending six months to come up with a the best big go-to-market strategy. So can you tell me a little bit about your concept of having go-to-market being a series of iterations? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we've been drawing from learnings from the um, product development world. And, and if you think about product development, the approach du jour is agile. Uh, and it has been for quite some time over the last 10 years or so. And if you think about what was prior to agile development, it was this notion that you spend all this time building up these very detailed requirements, then development team goes off and builds the entire thing, and then you launch it. And it's not till 18 months you know, after you start that you launch and you've spent a lot of money, and it's not until then that you find out whether you've got something useful or not. Agile is Let's put little pieces out and iterate quickly. And so what you end up gaining in an agile environment is the opportunity not to waste a whole lot of money just to find out that something's not going to work. So if you apply that same concept and go to market, you think about it, what do you have to get right? You have to optimize for product market and message fit. Uh, otherwise, you've got kind of this perpetual friction that lasts throughout everything else you do. You have to optimize around a set of strategies, particularly if you're talking about new customer, new logo acquisition. You have to optimize around a set of strategies to source these prospects. 
and try to find the strategies that you know are most productive in terms of return on investment and get away from the ones that aren't very productive you have to optimize around a set of processes right there's an entire you know set of for any given company you know 10 to 40 steps from lead to deal you think of that as a process flow you have to optimize those processes get rid of the friction make sure they're you know repeatable predictable scalable and efficient anyway the point is Nobody, I mean, no company is born having all of this stuff nailed. So by definition, it's a series of iterations that companies go through. The difference that we've seen between companies that are exceptionally good at this, so basically meaning they get to a highly optimized motion faster and burn through a lot less capital along the way, the difference between them and others is the notion that this process of iterating is conscious to them. They actually are very thoughtful about the fact that we are going through this series of iterations and experimentations. And when it's raised to a level of consciousness, there are things you actually do differently. So, for example, if you're going to try some new messaging, maybe on a, in, your, in your sales pitch, people who consciously iterate before they would launch the new messaging are going to say, okay, how are we going to measure? whether it's more effective, right? They never launch on a new iteration of anything without first knowing how they're going to measure whether it's better or worse. And contrast that with kind of what I'll call unconscious iteration. People just throw stuff out, right? I mean, they're constantly trying new stuff, but they haven't necessarily developed this mindset uh, like a scientist would, if you will, right? Think about science. Uh, you set up a hypothesis, then you're going to run an experiment to test that hypothesis. And part of running the experiment or designing the experiment is making sure you can measure this stuff. And so the same concept exists in what we'll refer to as agile go-to-market, which is we're going to do a whole bunch of kind of mini iterations, mini experiments, but we're always going to first make sure we have a way of measuring it in a very legitimate fashion, very clear fashion. We're going to put certain criteria for pass, fail, et cetera. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about conscious iteration. And as a result, what happens with the companies that do that is they basically find the failures much faster. And that's, that's really why they end up more effective. The primary difference between conscious iteration and unconscious iteration is how quickly you find the stuff that's not working. Yeah. Let, Makes sense? It does, but let's double click into the reality of this, right? And yeah. I'll give you an example because, you know, 10 to 40 steps, you said, I totally agree. It's a, a lot of steps from getting from initial awareness of your solution to a buyer all the way to being you know, a customer. But let's say that you want to expand your current marketplace. You're really good in the commercial, but you want to go to enterprise. And specifically, you want to go to a couple vertical industries that you think are a good ICP. Let's say it's you know automotive and discrete manufacturing. But you've got now the ICP is different. The buyer persona may or may not be different from what you did in commercial. It may be a, a buying committee now versus a single buyer, et cetera. The messaging is maybe a little bit different for the automotive industry than it was if you were horizontal before. So all these variables, how do you determine which variable might be the challenge if you're not seeing success? 
as in any type of experimentation, the idea is to try to control the number of variables, right? And I would argue in the example you're giving, I would start with one and I would probably start with messaging because there are, you know, there are very clear ways you can test messaging. You can, you know, use some um, advertising dollars, targeted advertising dollars to who you think is this new ICP and the right persona within the uh, expanded TAM. You can, uh, there's a number of services out there that can set up meetings with the right people that you want to talk to, usually under the guise of research, of market research. So there are a number of different ways where you can actually test your messaging. But again, what I would say is you start with a very clear experiment. So let's say you're going to do these research meetings. In fact, I can speak intimately of it because we're doing that right now because we're actually going through a experiment to test a different TAM or to expand our TAM around a different ICP. But you can say, okay, well, we think that this messaging is actually going to resonate with CFOs, right? Because there's some messaging we're testing around uh, efficient growth, right? As opposed to growth at all costs. And so we're going to meet with half dozen CFOs from these type of companies. And for starters, I mean, we basically collect data, right? And, and we do that through call recordings. We listen to for certain responses, certain reactions. We sort of, with six, it's not really a statistical analysis, but it, you're able to get a sense of what resonates and what doesn't. And then you decide, okay, well, based on what we've learned, you know, what do we want to tweak? And probably you need to go through, if you're doing it by talking to people, you probably need to go through 20 or 30 calls to basically hone the messaging in. But then once you've got that, then it's let's test the process, the selling process, right? Your question about single buyer versus buyer by committee, right? And I think there again, you you have to be explicit with your sales team or whoever that this is what we're doing over the next 60 days is we're actually testing what that buying process is. If you know in your mind that your goal is to figure out what the buying process is in these larger companies, then you can be very, you know, discreet in determining how you're going to go about that. So I just think though that you do have to knock down one variable at a time, if you will, because otherwise, as you said, it's kind of hard to tell which variables coming into play here, right? Yeah, well, you know, in scientific experiments, you always have your control group, right? And then right. you have your population. Let's evolve this conversation a bit to you've got great messaging, you've got product market fit now with that market, and you're getting some minimally viable repeatability. So you know that it works and you can rinse and repeat, but now you're looking to scale a little bit more. So you're looking at all those step-by-step metrics, right? That show you a conversion rate from maybe a conversation to a meeting, meeting to an opportunity, an opportunity to a close. So you build all these dashboards, whether it's in Salesforce, a specialized tool, but and you're like, man, I love data. And here's my 20 dashboards. And I'm looking at 40 different elements and I'm looking at them all kind of statically and historically. Yep. But I'm not sure that really helps you make better and quicker decisions, Scott. And I think that kind of might be a little bit about your concept of how you move from those static reports and dashboards to more dynamic real-time insights. Yeah, it's not so much dynamic in real time. We we have a view that says for data to be actionable, there has to be context. Let me give you an example, simple example that we all can relate to. Let's say I go to my doctor 
and my bad cholesterol number is at 50. That's a number, right? There's no context that says 50. She can't do anything with that. If she also knows that six months ago, my bad cholesterol was at 45, well, she still doesn't know whether my 50 is bad, but she knows it's getting worse. So she might nudge me a little bit and say, lay off the red meat or whatever it is, right? But if she also then understands that what is appropriate for my age group, you know, my age, my sex, et cetera, is that it should be between 20 and 35, then suddenly she knows she's got to take action because I'm way above this benchmark, right? That benchmark of 20 to 35 is context. The previous reading of 45 is also context. And it's adding the context around that one data point of 50 that suddenly instructs her that she needs to take action and, you know, prescribe me a statin or whatever the case might be. And so the the same example or the same concept applies tremendously around go-to-market data because people have just become numb, right? And, And to looking at all of this stuff and by and large, it's context free. I mean, usually they have the context of time, right? So they they might know that, well, this conversion rate has gone down this quarter versus last quarter. But imagine if they also built their plans, right? Instead of building new bookings plans based on, oh, we got to grow 30%, well, we'll hire 30% more salespeople. If they actually built their plans bottoms up with conversion rates and all these very detailed metrics, then suddenly you have the context of how are we performing against plan? You know, not just at the end goal of how many dollars, but if you know that the opportunity to deal conversion rate is fine relative to what we planned, but the website conversion rate on inbound from inbound sessions to leads is way below plan, you suddenly understand where you need to focus your attention as a management team. That's why context is so important is because what you're trying to do, I mean, so many companies, they don't have enough context, so they just try to get better at everything, which is a a recipe for failure. Instead, what you want to do is find the couple things that matter most at this specific point in time, and you cannot do that without a ton of context around the data. Does that make sense? I totally agree. And now you're into my wheelhouse. And that is, <laughs> now we talk about being metrics informed and benchmark validated decision makers here at RevOps Squared. Now, the metrics informed can provide you internal context. Oh, let's say my win rate you know, is clearly defined and it's consistent, has went from 15% to 21%, now it's at 24%. It makes you feel really good because the context is, look how much better we're getting. It's like your cholesterol went from 50 to 40 to 38. It's like, oh, it's getting better. Right. But then when you use the external benchmark context where maybe your close rate for your type of deal should be 28%, which is a very high one, just like your cholesterol should be 28 versus 38. But in this go-to-market motion, Scott, is it possible in our industry to have external context of what particular conversion rates or performance metrics should be? That is challenging. And it's certainly, I mean, you do great work, particularly providing those type of benchmarks at what I'll call 
investor level metrics, right? LTV, the CAC and that sort of stuff. Down at the operational level, website conversion rate, how fast should an SDR ramp? How many meetings a month should a SDR be able to produce for the sales team, et cetera? That's very difficult because nobody measures this stuff the same way. And, you know, so you almost need some kind of standardization of measurement of the operational measurements in order to get those benchmarks. And, you know, there, there are companies out there that are doing that. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I do think you'll see over time a better availability of industry benchmarks at an applicable cohort level down at the operational level. Boy, Scott, I can't wait for that because that's one of the challenges we have is even basic stuff like most SaaS companies, and we can debate whether they should or should not use the MQL, marketing qualified lead to sales qualified lead to sales qualified opportunity or some format of that, right? But right. everyone defines an MQL very differently. Sometimes M MQLs are really highly qualified and sometimes they suck, right? Right. So you yeah, actually, the definitions are largely tied to the marketing compensation plan. You're exactly right. <laughs> so boy, we could go on hours on this, but I would love to talk to you further about how as an industry we can get there because I think it's really important. But Let's talk more about the context, right? Because yeah, that's what yeah. you're talking about with the actual insights. Yeah. That sounds like sooner rather than later, as your company begins to scale, you're going to have to instrument whatever systems are collecting some of that data to provide that back. And one of the biggest challenges we see is it's fragmented. Maybe in the go-to-market motion, it comes from your marketing automation system, your CRM or Salesforce automation, and maybe even other kind of LinkedIn, paid ads, et cetera. So when do you start as a CEO and CRO, think about starting to instrument your transactional systems to have those actionable insights? Well, I mean, in our company, but that's more just because this is the way we live and think and breathe. We did it from day one. I mean, we, we designed the tech stack and the instrumentation of it before we even had a product. I don't think that's necessary. I think the time when you really need to do it is when you're thinking, okay, we're ready to move beyond founder-led growth and actually start to scale up a sales team and try to get predictable growth from people other than the founder, right? I think you want to have a proper tech stack in place, properly implemented to do the job those tools are supposed to do, but then properly instrumented at that point. Because that's when you're starting to spend a lot of money. Right. I mean, founder led growth, you're not usually spending a whole lot of money. But as soon as you start to transition away from that, you know, the investment level goes up. So you're saying once you have that go to market motion defined, all this unique steps and a customer acquisition component of that go to market motion, go ahead and define the measurements of success up front and instrument those measurements as soon as possible. Is that kind of right? I would say once you think you have product market fit, I'd say before you have your motion defined, because part of defining your motion is being able to measure what's working and what's not to begin with. So once you've got enough sales that you say, all right, I, I think we've got a product, we've got people that like this, 
we've made, you know, I don't know, a million dollars of sales and they're using it. We, we definitely have some product market fit. We feel pretty good about the way we're messaging it. Now we're going to, you know, hire our first salespeople. We're going to start investing in SDRs. We're going to start putting money into paid ads and stuff like that. You don't necessarily know at that time what the ideal kind of blend of those strategies is going to be or exactly what the motion is going to be. But I would say at that time, you want to have everything instrumented because that's what's going to help you to learn. Gotcha. And as we're talking about optimizing your go-to-market faster, we talked a little bit about that experimentation and feedback process when you're trying to accomplish product market fit. But once you accomplished it, is that where you get more focused on growth with less capital, i.e. growth efficiency? Or do you really think about that from day one, even as you're growing towards product market fit? I think the impetus of efficient growth is once you're spending a fair amount of money. Again, if you look at companies that are in founder-led growth mode, I mean, I think you just recently posted some CAC data on LinkedIn when you know you were showing, I don't know, on average, a lot of these things in the median were about $1.50 to, to acquire a dollar of ARR. You know, you're not spending anywhere near that with your founder-led growth. You, you might be spending 10 cents. It's once you have said, okay, we've got product market fit. Now we're going to start doing this investment. That's when you want to make sure you can do it efficiently, which is why all that instrumentation is important, right? Because it's without the instrumentation, you're going to hold on to stuff that's not working, you know, too long because you don't really know. Maybe you have a gut feel, but it's not a precise feel. And so, you know, you just end up basically wasting a lot of money. I mean, early in growth stage companies, once they start, you know, scaling their sales and marketing investments, I mean, a high portion of that is completely non-productive spend. You, you know, nice. if you talk to the venture community, they'll probably tell you like 70% of uh, series A and B uh, sales and marketing spend is completely wasted. Ooh, let's stop right there. So, <laughs> okay. So, Didn't mean to hit a nerve. Uh, well, that's because we really want to drill down in that to our, for our listening audience. 70% is wasted, 50, 70, whatever it is. Do you have some advice for those people trying to scale from that, you know, 1 million to five or five to 10, who now they've got some repeatability, they want to have some more capital efficiency. How do you determine what is and is not working? When I say what is or is not, it's like you've got multiple marketing programs. You overlay that with some outbound demand gen with your sales development team. Maybe you have your sales team doing some of their own direct pipeline development. You're trying four or five different markets, but how do you really precisely identify what is and is not working as quickly as possible, Scott? Well, so for starters, you have to have set up. I mean, I'm making the assumption everyone uses a tech stack of some sort, right? Everyone's using a marketing automation platform, a CRM. You know, if you've got an outbound motion, you absolutely should be using a cadence tool. And if you've got any kind of sales motion, you should be using something like Gong or Chorus, right? These are kind of core tech stack for go to market. For starters, you have to make sure that tech stack is set up properly so that you are able to, you know, tag and attribute something that comes in over the website as paid search and understand that, keep that tag and understanding the whole way through the lead to deal process, right? And one of the, you know, very frustrating things that we see, particularly at Series A, is people buy these tools, but don't have the expertise to put them in properly. And so there is no connection. There is no connection between the fact that something came in at paid search, and by the time it's an opportunity in the CRM, 
you have no idea that it came in on paid search. So, you know, step number one, and we've done some podcasts on this, and I'm going to say it in a derogatory term because I want people to actually pay attention, but you got to stop having amateurs put these tools in. Because what happens then by the time you get to series B, and this is 90% of companies, they're going, our data is a mess. Uh, It takes us my entire management team four days to prepare for a board meeting because everything we pull out of Salesforce or whatever is wrong. Then we got to go back and try to decipher and do forensics on what the data should have said, you know, and, and we just keep repeating this process of amateurs installing the tech stack because people buy tools, but not the expertise to put them in. Right. And then they get in this complete mess where their data is garbage and they, they effectively have to go through this painful process of cleaning stuff up. So point number one is you got to set up your tech stack right. By the way, what you hear in the background is our revenue operations leader saying, yeah, you need to invest in us earlier, right, Scott? <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, and it's it's just so true because, I mean, you, you're not on a level competitive playing field if you aren't leveraging technology properly anymore. Right. I mean, because everybody's using it and the people that are using it right are going to be more effective. They're going to be more efficient. So, you know, I just think the, the RevOps thing, the hire experts to do the, the job. I mean, think about this stuff. It's sophisticated IT. You would never back in the day of IT ask a sales leader to implement your database. It just doesn't make any sense. So anyway, the point is you got to set up the tech stack properly so that you actually can produce legitimate data. I mean, if you think about the tech stack, its first purpose isn't to be a source of data. Its first purpose is to automate tasks of the sellers and marketers. It has turned out that a collateral benefit we've gotten from these things is they actually start to produce some data if they're properly set up. Now, as they say, there's many ways to skin a cat, but I'm going to ask you a tough question. Sure. So, I've got my product market fit. I've started to see some scale. I'm moving from founder-led sales. I brought in a VP of sales and I got my VP of marketing now, right? Do I hire sales ops first? Do I hire marketing ops first? Do I hire them simultaneously? Or do I hire rev ops and have them kind of look at the whole thing and decide how I use a sales ops or marketing ops resource, whether it's internal or external? Yeah, well, whether you hire anybody in-house is is sort of dependent on your scale. And and let me explain that. There actually are distinctly different skill sets. So there are people out there, what I'll basically call tech stack architects, right? They've been at this for 15 years. Often they've been in smaller companies, so they've been responsible for all the pieces, connecting marketing automation platforms to CRMs, putting Chili Piper in, or all these other tools, right? But they've learned over a number of years how to make all these pieces play together. You only really need that skill set up front. Once it's properly architected and implemented, then you kind of go into admin mode. And these people that are great architects, they don't want to be admins, right? And, and, and you can't afford, I mean, they're 150K people. You, you can't afford that, right? And at some point when you start thinking, okay, we need to be very good with data and analytics, you probably need a data analyst or data analyst skills that thinks about, okay, what's the data schema? How are we going to make sure that everything's instrumented properly within the tech stack? How are we going to make sure that there's a 
uh, mechanisms to ensure data integrity and data hygiene and all this kind of stuff. These are different skill sets. They don't all exist in the same person. So these earlier stage companies, unless you can afford to hire five different people, you're not going to have the requisite skill sets you need. So I would actually argue until you get to a scale where you can use minimally three or four people with distinctly different skill sets full time, that you actually should outsource that. Because the benefit of outsourcing, if you go, you know, depending on who you go with, is you get the right expertise that you need at the right time. And I think a lot of these companies, what most of them do is the first in-house hire is typically like a Salesforce admin. Right. Because the salesperson, the, the sales leader has finally gotten tired of being the person managing the, the CRM. So they hire a, you know, modest level Salesforce admin. It costs, I don't know, 60, 70, 80K. And I'm sorry, that person is not going to be that helpful. I mean, they're, they're fine if you want to build some reports or something, but they're not architects. They're, they're not data people. And more often than not, we see those people make the situation a little bit worse. And I can't believe it's gone. Our 30 minutes is already coming to an end. So let me kind of wrap up with any last insights or ideas you'd like to provide to our listening audience of how to really be able to build their go-to-market as a series of conscious iterations. No, I'd say first, you know, buy into that notion that the concept of agile applies here, which is run experiments, be very conscious about how you can measure them so that you don't hold on to things that aren't working excessively long. And then, you know, kind of the infrastructure to support that, that whole notion of conscious iteration means you have to have a tech stack that's properly architected, properly set up and properly instrumented. And you're not going to get that if you think your marketing leader or your sales leader are the people that can put that thing together. So you've got to Invest in the expertise, whether it's your own people or an outsourced group. You need to invest in the expertise to set up your infrastructure so that you can support this notion of rapid and conscious iteration. And if you do that, you will get to a really good place and you will burn through very little capital along the way. Great advice. And let's take it's a couple more minutes for the audience to get to know Scott a little bit more on a personal basis through three quick questions. Number one, which CEO or company do you think is a must follow for fellow SaaS CEOs and founders today? Who do you follow? To be honest with you, I probably follow more people in the investment community or people like you because I'm looking for thought leadership around ways to manage businesses better. And, you know, to be honest with you, and I'm most of us as CEOs don't have the time to be putting a lot of energy into that stuff. Got you. Well, I'm just honored that you even threw me in there and that you, uh, you, 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 you I mean, you put, you put good stuff out there. You really do. And uh, oh. more people should uh, pay attention to it. Thank you. Second question, which application, not your own, should every SaaS company be using to kind of achieve the goals you're talking about? Well, I mean, obviously you, you need to have a CRM, assuming you have enough activity going, but I would say these conversation intelligence tools have been game-changing for two reasons. Uh, largely to date, they've been game-changing because they've made the process of sales coaching much more scalable because it's it's just easier to 
find the important parts in a call when there's uh, you know a learnable opportunity etc i think in the future where those tools are going to be game changing is truly impacting messaging and product roadmaps i mean the two their leading ones have been gong and chorus if you think about them they've they've built very nice businesses selling to sales managers i think the real win for those things is when product management starts living in those tools uh, you're spot on. In fact, previous guest we had on Metrics of Asia Up was Amit Bendoff, the founder and CEO of Gong. Yep. And he talked about that exact thing, Scott, about moving from sales to customer success and product and product roadmap to really be able to capture the voice of the customer. So that's great advice. Last question. Somebody's getting ready to graduate college next year, just recently graduated, and they want to be the next great B2B cloud company or SaaS founder? Maybe it's five years, 10 years from now. What advice do you give them so they can be a B2B SaaS founder, Scott? I would say the advice I would give them would be what type of role to get as your first job. And if you can, I would say get a product management job. And the reason is it's the closest job to a CEO. You have so much breadth of responsibility and, and more importantly, breadth of exposure because you, know, you have to deal with development, understanding development, right? Product development. You have to deal with positioning, understanding strategy, customers, needs, all that sort of stuff. You know, driving requirements into a product that makes it easier for the salespeople, right? So I, I think I would advise young people, if you can, to get as quickly as possible into the product management function of a you know of a decent SaaS company because you'll get just get tremendous exposure. And, and then you know, I would also say get some sales years under your belt. Whether or not you ever really want that as your career, I think it's extraordinarily important for leaders of companies to be empathetic to that role because it's a tough one. That is great advice, and it, it parallels so many of our other guests who are founders and CEOs like this. It's almost everyone, and we'll talk about either the product side and or the sales side. So thank you for that insight. Let's give it up for Scott Stoffer, who's the founder and CEO of Scale Matters. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guests and topics like we just discussed with Scott, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us with the rating and even your recommendation how we can make the show even better. Scott, thanks a lot. Ray, thanks for having me, man. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.